little balls of Play-Doh. Um, you know, it's 3 o'clock on Saturday. It's nap time. So as a homeschool mom, I know sometimes we pay a, we pay better attention if we've got a little, a little something in our hands. So they're going to pass out. They've got little balls of Play-Doh. And they also have a paper with a couple of QR codes on there. Um, this lesson is titled Only Love Today, Seeing Beyond Failings and Flaws. My my thing doesn't like my face. Come on. Okay. Um, so when Carla asked me, I was really excited. Speaking at the Bear Valley Lectures as a Bear Valley grad is really bucket list level for me. I'm really excited about that. And then she told me what she wanted me to speak on, and I was significantly less excited. Um, <laughs> Only Love Today is a phrase that comes from uh, Rachel Macy Stafford. She has a blog called Hands Free Mama. Frankly, I can't tell you that much about it. There's this one blog post that I really liked, and that's, that's all I've got for you. But it's called Only Love Today, and this is a little phrase. It's also a reference to my tattoo here. Um, and I didn't really want to tell that story, but I do have that story on my blog and inevitably people are going to be curious. So that's what the QR codes are for. Seeing beyond failings and flaws is another is a reference to another post that I have, which is sort of a follow-up to the first. And both deal with my own struggle, my own journey with depression and with suicidality. Just saying those words is really hard, which is why I was less excited. <laughs> um, I should have thought to ask you for tissues before. I, I'm going to need that. Um, so as I prepared for this lesson, ironically, um, I dealt with feeling really inadequate. Um, I dealt with uh, just feeling too flawed. Um, but I also, so because of that, I started asking people to pray for me. Please pray for me about this lesson. And I don't know if y'all know this, we needed to have our manuscripts in back in April. So I've been both looking forward to and dreading this lesson <laughs> since like January. <laughs> um, but as I was talking with people and telling people I'm going to be talking about this, um, a lot of people had the idea that um, suicidality comes from feeling like everything is so terrible and it's never going to get better. And some people, I'm sure, do feel that way. For me, it was more like things are great. And when they're not, it's my fault. And maybe it would be better if I weren't here. And so I had to learn to see beyond those failings, those flaws. Depression for me felt like different things at different times. Sometimes people describe depression as a deep, dark pit. And I think for me it felt a lot, and I'm not trying to say that I'm completely cured. No. I think it felt more like a vast, empty warehouse dark there must be a door somewhere there must be a window somewhere but I don't know where and I don't know how to get there and so it's just sitting in the dark not even a wall to lean on and it's hard maybe some of you recognize that darkness 
Maybe it sounds overly dramatic if you don't recognize it. The truth is this is this isn't the whole story. It's really dark. And in the darkness, there's two voices. One voice is the bully, is the accuser. And the accuser points out every little thing you ever do wrong and turns molehills into mountains. I was born and raised here in Denver. There's not a whole lot of moles here in Denver. <laughs> but we moved to Oklahoma. Um, it was my one of my husband's first preaching positions. And there, I, it was my job to mow the lawn. And there were molehills. And I'd always thought molehills were kind of like prairie dog mounds. And prairie dog mounds, you know, are, I mean, they're not huge, but prairie dog mounds are bigger than molehills. But this accuser turns these little things into rocky mountains and makes it seem so big, insurmountable, and points out every single one. And sinister. And sometimes it even sounds like tough love. Oh, honey, you're just not good enough. There's another voice in the darkness. And that voice takes these small things, these things that you do wrong, and it turns these oopsies into character flaws. It takes, I did something bad, and turns it into, I am bad. And so between these two voices... The bully, that accuser, makes the darkness darker. And this second voice locks the door and keeps you there. This second voice is called shame. And shame sounds small. It sounds innocuous. It sounds almost cute, like shame on you. It sounds like you ate three cookies instead of two. But shame... Shame is insidious. Shame makes you feel isolated. Shame makes you feel like you can't talk to anybody about what you're going through. Because if they knew, if they knew the real you, they wouldn't want anything to do with you. They would, And shame doesn't even bother to specify what the consequences might be. Just leaves it to your own imagination. If they knew, hmm. And so you don't dare ask for a lifeline. You don't dare ask somebody for help because shame says you can't do that. The good news is both of these voices have the same weakness. And that weakness is words. It's wrapping words around them. It's naming them. It's being able to say, that's not true. That's the bully's voice. That's the accuser's voice. That is not true. And it's being able to say to somebody else, I feel a lot of shame. And as soon as you're able to do that, the darkness lightens a little. The door is maybe a little bit ajar. As soon as you're able to name the weakness, it helps. It helps tremendously. Shame cannot stand being spoken. Shame works when it convinces you that you are alone. And when you name it and wrap words around it and speak it, shame can't hold on anymore. It's a prerequisite for shame, believing that you're alone. Even saying, I feel a lot of shame, strikes a mighty blow to shame. 
Shame wants you isolated in the dark because it keeps you away from God's people. Shame has this way of saying, you know, anybody could say something good to you, say something nice to you, tell you something wonderful, but shame whispers and says, yeah, that's not really, that's not true because they don't really know. They don't really know. And so you can't even hear the good voices that could help you. So we know what the problem is, but what do we do about it? My pages have gotten out of order, y'all. One thing, this is kind of a side note. That bully, that accuser, I think it's helpful to give that bully a name. And please, nobody take offense. I named mine Bernadette. (laughs) I named mine Bernadette because I just thought, that's a name I can spit right out. Bernadette. (laughs) I've, I've only known one Bernadette. Frankly, I barely remember her. I think she was nice. I don't know. But Bernadette... And it makes that big, nebulous, ugly voice small, contained, and it helps. And when I hear, when I start to hear those lies, I go, mm, that's Bernadette. And so it helps me to name my bully. So that's kind of a side note. So I'm talking about Bernadette. That's what I'm talking about. So part of the reason that I felt inadequate to the task of speaking to you about this, especially at Bear Valley Bible Institute, because this is a Bible Institute, I wanted to be able to stand here and say to you, here are the scriptures that helped me through my depression, and a proper exegesis will get you through your depression. But that was not the case for me. In fact... Scripture was not a salve for my weary soul. Scripture was a stick I used to beat myself. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Think on heavenly things. All of these kinds. Seek seek first the will of God and all these will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. And my broken heart would cry out, I know, I'm trying. I'm trying. I just am not doing it. So I wish I could stand before you and say, this passage is the passage that will get you through. This passage is the passage to share with your friends in the darkness. But I can't. It's more complicated than that. So there's a book out there called, um, the name has flown my brain. I'm sorry. Thought Garden. I thought it was written here. It's called Thought Garden, and it's a fairly new book. It's written by Laura Jenkins. She's a sister in the Lord's Church, and uh, she has a devotional book for women, and she has a picture book for kids. And we're going to, for this lesson, we're going to kind of look at, I've kind of stolen her idea, and we're going to go through that. Um The idea is your mind is a garden, your thoughts are the seeds, you can plant flowers or you can plant weeds. And that's not Laura's thought, that's, you guys might have even seen that on Pinterest, I think it pops up on my Pinterest bird every three times. Some weeds, you know, the the idea is that the things in your mind are going to benefit you, like plants, like good plants, or they are going to be deleterious to you in your life. And so the idea is you find the weeds, you pull the weeds, you plant good things in the place. Finding the weeds is tricky. Identifying Bernadette's voice is sometimes really tricky. Sometimes they're cutesy. I have this little shirt. 
this is a shirt I made for myself and I've worn I think twice but I decided I'm not going to wear it anymore here it says I run a tight shipwreck it's funny right but I found that as I, when I would wear it or things, something would go through, something would be going wrong in the day. Anybody have everything go wrong? Any wrong? Yeah, yeah. So something would be going wrong in my day, and I'd go, yep, I run a tight shipwreck. And it's cutesy, and so it sticks. But I decided that's a weed, and I don't want to think that anymore. And so that's kind of the principle behind this idea of gardening. I forgot I do have to move a little bit. I hope this is going to work. Um, so we have three. We have three different steps here. We're going to point, which is we're going to point out what are the weeds, and we're going to pull. We're going to decide we're not thinking this anymore. And then we're going to plant. And this is what comes from Laura Jenkins' book, Thought Garden. And I have not gotten all the way through that book. Um, you know, this is one of those things that was going to happen between April and now that did not happen. So I can't really, I'm not telling you that it's the most amazing book. I haven't read it all the way through. But um, this is also kind of like Cindy Baker had talked about, cut the fear, paste the faith. Same kind of idea. We're going to cut the negative thoughts and we're going to paste good ones in place. One thing that I've been doing that has been really, really helpful is um, in my in my journal, when a weed comes up, when I figure, oh, that's Bernadette, then I write that down and I write over the top in big letters, weed. And then I write down something positive to replace it. And that's what we're going to do. So the first weed that I wanted to discuss today is... I should be beyond this by now. I should have grown past this issue. And since I haven't, I must not be righteous. For me, this was angry outbursts, it was less than daily Bible study. It was a scant prayer life. Your this might be different. But we have things in our lives that we wish weren't the way that they are, but they are the way that they are. And we feel like we should get beyond it. Um, so I'm, my plan is to write the weeds and then to write weed over it. We'll see how this goes. Okay, so I should be beyond this by now. This is a weed. This is a weed because it's based on the idea that I should have been able to power through this. I'm better than this. I can do this. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3. By the way, Carla, I totally forgot to start a timer. So if I start to go over, feel free to throw something at me. <laughs> Philippians. Does anybody else have Bible books hide from them? Yeah. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at, in this context, um, Paul 
is talking about things that he had counted as gain or he's now counting as loss. And he says in verse 4, although I myself might have had confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day in the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. So Paul was the Jew. He was the model citizen. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all these things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now we've read this passage in lots of ladies' days and we're used to saying, yes, all my worldly things, that's nothing. And I, the, the value of knowing Christ surpasses all of that. But that's not exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about righteousness. His righteousness is not going to come from being the Jew. That's not where his righteousness comes from. He says, I want my righteousness to come through faith in Christ. That's where my righteousness is going to come from. I felt like I've been a Christian 20 some odd years. I've done this. I've been through the Bear Valley Bible Institute. I've been a preacher's wife. I've written articles. I've established a ladies' ministry. I've done the things. I should be beyond this by now. And since I'm not, I must not be righteous. But I had failed to understand that my righteousness is based entirely on God seeing me through the blood of Christ. My righteousness has nothing to do with my striving against sin. They're separate issues altogether. Avoiding sin, striving against sin is something we do because we love God. Because we're trying to, not because we're trying to earn righteousness. We strive against sin. We do. But that's not because I'm trying to be righteous. It is as though I thought that when I became a Christian, when I came up out of the waters of baptism, I was handed a clean slate and told, keep it clean. And that's kind of the way I, I acted. I failed to realize that righteousness isn't something you can mess up. Righteousness is something you can walk away from. You can do that. You can make that choice. But righteousness isn't something you can besmirch or get messed up or foul up. You either are righteous and in Christ or you're not. It has nothing to do with my law keeping. Paul goes on in Philippians 3. Let's read it through in verse 10. Uh, he talks about that I may be found in him. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The inspired apostle Paul 
handpicked by Jesus, who'd performed miracles, raised the dead, established and encouraged congregation, written books of scripture, and so much more, confesses to being flawed. He confesses to being less than perfect. Even he had not grown past struggling against sin. He could have hidden in shame, but shame does not win. He says, I press on. His failings and flaws in view of the law are as much nothing as his fleshly accolades are loss. All of it, all of it is loss. Having a righteousness through faith means that his law keeping or his lack thereof is rubbish. He abandoned it all. Any righteousness he might have earned on his own, as well as his many earthly honors, for what? To gain Christ. My failings, my flaws, don't prevent me from being righteous. It's not. Thanks for the forgiveness, Jesus. I've got it from here. I'll keep my own slate clean. That's not the way it is. I'm righteous because God said so, based on my obedient faith in Christ. My striving then must be out of love. My striving against sin, that struggle against sin, has to be out of love for him, not an attempt to earn his good opinion. Just as Paul's fleshly accolades were lost, just as his law-keeping was lost, my law-keeping must also be lost. And I take the forgiveness based on Christ's blood, not on my attempts to strive against sin. So this weed is not true. The truth... The truth that we need to plant in this place is that my righteousness is not reliant on me. <laughs> so in my journal, I write down the weed and I write weed over it and then I write the truth. And the truth here is righteousness. I'm not going to write out the whole thing because that's like a lot and y'all don't want to stand here and watch me. The next weed I want to look at is the idea that I'm still struggling. It must be unrepentant sin. And if it's unrepentant sin, God will not forgive me. Bernadette loves to tell me, I'm tired of forgiving you. It's enough. You've been doing, you've been struggling and struggling and struggling for so long. It's unrepentant. Just give up. But that's not true. I had this idea that God would get tired of forgiving me of the same things over and over. You ever get to New Year's Day and you're trying to think of resolutions and you're like, well, I did that one last year. Doing it again. It kind of gets to feel that way, right? But 
Jesus makes it clear that forgiveness is not something to be given in limited quantities. Remember in Matthew 18, 20 to 21, and also in Luke 17, 3 through 4, Jesus expresses this idea a couple of times. In Matthew, Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often shall I sin against my brother and I forgive him? Up to seven times? (laughs) And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to what? 70 times 7. 70 times 7. Now, how legalistic would Peter have to be to be keeping a tally? You reach 77, I'm done. No, that's not the idea. In fact, in Scripture, 7 sometimes represents fullness. Whether it does here or not is another question altogether. Either way, the idea is clear. Forgiveness is not something to be given in limited quantities. Not for us to each other and not from God to me. He will never tire of forgiving me and my struggle against sin. So Bernadette chimes in again and she says, but what about keeping fruits of repentance? Hmm? What about that? You don't have fruits of repentance. See, so you're not repentant. It's not true. That's not what that means. In Matthew 3, verse 8, we have the conflict, I guess you could say, between John the baptizer and the Pharisees. And this is where that comes from, this idea of fruits bearing with repentance. And so Bernadette says, you haven't overcome, you're not bearing fruits, so you're not repentant. But the idea that repentance demands fruit is another of Bernadette's lies, and reading it in context... Hashtag context. (laughs) Bears out Bernadette's lie. The Pharisees that John is rebuking in Matthew 3, they're not there for the right reasons. They didn't come there because they were repentant hearts. In fact, we see in Scripture that they thought they should be forgiven based on their lineage. Their hearts were not repentant. And John, rather, is saying to them, need to see some fruits out of you. You're not doing, your heart is not right. In fact, the struggle against sin, that striving against sin that was talked about by one of the speakers earlier, that striving, that's the point. That's the point. To keep on struggling. So the idea that struggling, that, that I don't have fruits and therefore I'm not repentant, That's not true. The truth is that struggling is part of repentance, and God forgives repentant sin. And he will never get tired of forgiving you. And he will never get tired of forgiving me. Here's the prickliest weed of all for me. I'm just not up to snuff. Just not good enough. My best isn't good enough. This is so spiky. It hurt when I'm just typing it out. It just kind of, oh, it hurts. This is really the trump card in Bernadette's deck. I can say to her, I'm repentant because I'm so sorry and I'm trying to do better. And she just switches tactics. And she says, I know. You're trying your hardest. The thing is, your best just isn't good enough. You're still failing. Ouch. Ouch. But it's a lie. It's a lie. 
and don't believe it. You don't believe it, and I'm choosing not to believe it either. This idea that I'm not up to snuff is a logical fallacy called begging the question. And this is where there's an assumed thing that goes along with it. There's a, a, an assumption that is ingrained, and it's taken as, as a given. We have this idea that there is a standard, and we're not living up to it. But if you pause and you rewind and you ask, good enough for what? I'm not good enough for what? What is it that I need to be good enough for? The scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers of Jesus' day, they were masters of legalism. They were masters of determining the standard. How much mint and cumin do I need to tie? They were masters at this. But when one comes to him, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter, oh, I'm already there. Um, Mark chapter 12, we have a scribe coming and asking Jesus for the, the greatest command. Verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, he being Jesus, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, okay, Jesus answered, we already know. You guys have read this passage. But he doesn't pick the Ten Commandments penned by the finger of God before Moses broke that tablet. He doesn't pick those. He doesn't pick any of those. In fact, he picks one that, wow, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. That's the greatest command. That is the snuff I'm supposed to be up to. That is the standard. So what does God want from you? What is the standard? What does he want from you? Everything. Everything. Every single thing you have to offer, God wants it. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants your mind. He wants your strength. He wants all of it. So it turns out that God's standard is both higher and lower than mine and Bernadette's. Bernadette says, perfect behavior is what you need. I was aiming for perfect behavior and thinking that would be enough for God. But it wasn't. What God wants is my heart. He wants my heart. So I, perfect behavior, perfect law keeping isn't enough. Without the devotion of my whole heart, it isn't up to snuff. And so Bernadette chimes in and she says, well, how do you know if your heart's not, if your heart's really in it, if not by your behavior? And she says, if your behavior isn't perfect, then doesn't that show that your heart isn't really in it? No, Bernadette, that's not what that means. <laughs> Think about David for a moment. David's one of our heroes, right? We also know that he had his flaws. This is one of the marks of inspiration of scripture, right? That we see our heroes and we see their failings. David was counted as a man after God's own heart who did all of God's will, according to Acts 13, verse 22. Not only that, David is the standard that God himself holds the kings to 
from there on. He's the one, he's, God admonishes Solomon to follow in his father's footsteps. But David was far from a perfect keeper of the law. David, when he was on the run from Saul, he ate the bread consecrated only for the priests. That's what he did. And then provoked by Satan himself, demanded a census of Israel. Look with me at 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. We're not going to read the whole thing. It says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Satan himself moved David to number Israel. David said to Joab, y'all, I feel so sorry for Joab, said to Joab and to the princes of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring me word that I may know their number. Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord, the king, they are not all, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does the Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Joab knows this is not a good idea. Joab tries to talk him out of it. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Joab got bullied into it. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. So he numbers them. And then verse 7, God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. David said to God, I have sinned greatly. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so David ate the consecrated bread. David numbered the people of Israel. And we're going to see that 70,000 men of Israel fell to pestilence because of David's sin. And then there's the whole Bathsheba incident, right? And sometimes we gloss over that a little bit, but think about it. He bedded a woman that wasn't his, never mind he already had six wives. He got her pregnant, and then he has her husband killed to cover it up. Why did he have to kill Uriah? Because shame, shame wouldn't let him reveal what he had done. He should have been out there with the field. Remember Uriah? David kept trying to send Uriah back. Go to Bathsheba, go to Bathsheba. And he wouldn't. Uriah did what was right. And David, in all that shame, I mean, he could have overcome shame. He could have said, Uriah, man, I messed up. I messed up and I'm really ashamed. He could have come clean. But shame won't let you. Shame won't let you. Shame locked that door on David. And he had Uriah killed. But the thing that makes David, this irreverent, angry, murdering adulterer, the thing that makes David a man after God's own heart is that when he falls seven times, he gets up eight. And he takes that shame and he takes that sin and he runs to God with it. In the Chronicles account, we see that his... David said, I have sinned greatly. 2 Samuel 24 and verse 10 says, David's heart troubled him. The word that's translated trouble is elsewhere translated destroy. Destroy. 
It's translated defeat, conqueror. David was cut to the heart by his sin. In fact, this is the word when he sends Joab to have Uriah killed. He says, withdraw for him so, he they may, so that he may be struck down and die. When David realized his sin, his heart was destroyed within him. David mourned over his sin and he ran to God with his shame. And that is what makes him a man after God's own heart. That is the thing that God says he wants. He wants a whole heart devoted to him. Psalm 51, please turn there with me. Psalm 51 is what David penned after Nathan the prophet had come to him in his sin with Bathsheba. In verse 4, David says, Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Well, David had sinned against others as well, but that was nothing in comparison to what he knew he had done to God. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. The thing that breaks David's heart is that his sin separates him from God. And then he says the thing that Bernadette fails to grasp. Look with me at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So when I am brokenhearted over my sin, when I am pleading with God, help me, help me to not be this person, help me to not do these things. That is exactly what God wants. And he will not despise that broken spirit, that broken heart. God wants your whole heart devoted to him. A devoted heart looks like a little kid on the soccer field. This little boy runs down the field. He scores a goal and immediately he looks for who? Mom. He looks for mom. Her rejoicing smile seals the goal. He trips. He skins his knee. He runs to mom. Mom's kiss, her reassuring embrace, his kiss, that kiss on her owie, the whole world is right again. He aims a kick. He whiffs it. How does he going to feel about it? He sees mom. Mom's just kind of <laughs> chuckling a little bit. Okay, it's all right. His heart is devoted to her. He's mama's boy. And that's what it is for us too. For him, for this little boy, everything hinges on, well, what does mom think about that? Did she see my goal? Was she excited? Is it okay that I skinned my knee? Oh, I made a mistake. Is that okay? And mom's reaction is what matters. It's the same for us. Anything that happens in our lives, our rejoicing or our mourning must hinge on the question, on the answer to the question, what does God think about that? The answer is this. In Christ, my sins and my failings are covered over. 
They're removed as far as the east is from the west. In Christ, all my victories are his and everything is to his glory. So the idea that my best isn't enough, it's just not true. It's not true. God wants my heart, not my best efforts. God's ways are indeed higher than our ways. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7 is where we'll start. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. Now, if we let Bernadette finish this, then it would go something like this. Let the wicked return and God will let him sit in the corner and he better be just grateful to be breathing. That's what Bernadette says. It's not what God says. God says, let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon And I sit here and go, what? Really? Abundantly pardon? Even me? Even me. He goes on. It's as if he can hear my doubts already. Before Isaiah even penned it, it's like he can hear me asking, really God, really me? And he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This whole weed, this pulling, this pointing and pulling and planting is removing unbiblical thoughts. Is deciding, I'm not going to think those things anymore. I'm going to pull those and I'm going to plant God's word in place. And God says, I will forgive you and 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 I will will never be tired of forgiving you. I want your heart. I want your everything. And it's because my ways are not like your ways. My ways are higher. And in context, he goes on to reassure them. And he talks about, my word doesn't come out and return to me empty. It's as though he's saying to them, I mean what I say. Return to me and I will bless you. I will bless you. God does not grudgingly accept me back. God abundantly pardons He rejoices over me, even me, in all my messy repentance, in all my imperfection. He rejoices over me. Better than that, he takes my failings and my flaws and he uses them. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Anybody hear a key word in there? <laughs> but check this out. Verse 4, Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. This word for so that is the same as Acts 2 and verse 38, where he says that we are baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. God comforts us for the purpose of us comforting others. How amazing is that? It's not just that God will forgive me and he will cover over my failings, my flaws. It's not just that he overlooks them. He takes it. And he says, comfort others. Use this for others. I am really out of time. Genesis chapter 50. This is after Jacob has died and Joseph's dealing with his brothers. I think I said the wrong. Anyway, this is, we're dealing with Joseph's brothers and they're scared to death because now that dad's gone, maybe Joseph is now he's going to exact his revenge. Now he's going to do it. But look at verse 20. As for you, you meant, this is Joseph talking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. This word for meant has its root in weaving. You wove evil. God wove it for good. And we have this repeated in Romans chapter 8. In verse 28, the context of Romans 8 is suffering, suffering. And he says that he will that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. In this life, no. But when we're in eternity and we look back, we will see that God wove it for good. Just like Shara talked about in her lesson. That back, did you see the picture? She had the embroidery and the back is just a mess and the front is beautiful. So what do we do when those threads of our tapestry feel heavy, feel difficult to bear, too ugly, too heavy, too impossible? The God of all comfort asks us to take the comfort and to give it to others. When I bring my mess to God, when I ask him for comfort, he gives it abundantly and I can pass it on to others. Think again about David and all the people who had to bear those consequences. 70,000 men, brothers, sons, fathers died. Bathsheba lost her son or lost her husband and then lost her son because David was a straight up idiot. <laughs> so what do we do with that heaviness? We have to learn the lesson that David learned the hard way. He let shame defeat him. We get to learn from his mistake. And we don't let shame ha let make us hide. Bernadette and 
shame would have us hide and wallow in the guilt. But God, God would have us run to him. God would have us turn it all over to him, every ugly, messy bit of it, turn it over to him. And he'll weave it all for good. Now I gave you Play-Doh because Play-Doh's fun. <laughs> and because it's 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Did anybody make anything? Yes. Show me. It's just a cube. I've got a cube. A pretty mine. perfect cube. Another cube. What else? I made a penguin. A donut. Oh. A circle. Anybody else? What have you got? Sheree. She's got a tortilla. I gave you a mess of goo. And you guys made something out of it. And God will do the same. But you have to give the goo to him. No matter how blue it is, give your mess to God. And he will make something out of it. Thank you very much. I turned it off. Do you want it on? Thank you, Erin. When I read through her manuscript, so many things stood out to me, but one of many was how she talked about Scripture being a stick instead of a staff, which I think many of us use sometimes when you know something about the Bible. When you study it, you tend to use those things against yourself. And I think the devil is the one that wants us to use Scripture as a stick instead of a sad. Thank you. I needed to hear that. I needed to read it. And I think that there's not a single person in here that didn't need to hear and read those words. This is the last ladies' lesson, and it's been wonderful. And thank you so much for everyone who took part in it. Thank you for all of the lessons for your attendant, attendance and your attention. Thank you, Kathy and Lisa, for your teacher workshop. The only thing that was wrong with it was that it wasn't long enough. <laughs> we appreciate everything that you have done and all that you've done to be here. And we have someone have a schedule and know what the next Supper. Supper's next, but after that, what time is the six, six, six o'clock? Mm -hmm. Be back here. I'm going to look forward to seeing you. I've had so many people that I would like to thank, but y'all don't need to hear it. Thank you for everything everyone has done, and we'll see you again in a couple hours. Thank <laughs> you.